come to terms with the breadth and depth of what some experts are calling one of the biggest cyber attacks of all time. Targeted by a massive cyber attack. Allegedly, it all began. We are concerned that there are a large number of victims and are working with our partners. To an investigation revealed usernames and passwords may have been exposed. Because of potential cybersecurity risks. The story I'm about to share today is disturbing. It's about a Canadian who was hacked and tracked. I'm not talking about a simple house break-in where you feel violated because somebody went through your bedroom drawers or the knot in your stomach when someone's taken over your computer. I'm talking about every second of every day. It's like you had a peeping Tom when you went to bed, someone staring over your shoulders, every piece of trash someone went through and wherever you walked or moved. It's like you had an army of people peering over newspapers understanding more of how you think, feel, and behave. That person, you might know him because it might be you. Dr. Susanna Zuboff is an American author and Harvard professor. She's a social psychologist and philosopher and scholar and she's leading a fight for humans' future at the new frontier of digital. And she's coined this phrase, surveillance capitalism. And the new oil is data, your data. Because the more a handful of companies know about how you think, feel, and behave, the bigger, stronger, and more powerful they become. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today, we're going to talk about what you can do to protect yourself in this new Wild Wild West. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. In this show, I talk to ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things despite circumstances. And in doing so, we uncover life lessons that we can apply to inspire us to do more and to be more, to help us get to where we need, want, and deserve to go. Today, I'm chatting with two people. First is Dr. Anne Kavukian. She authored a paper called Privacy by Design. The idea is to protect the individual's privacy. She's a Canadian, but her work has been institutionalized around the world. We're also going to talk to Adam Evans, who heads up cybersecurity and many other things for RBC. You can hear things like, there's more crime committed in cyber now than all other crime combined. Think about that. First, I want to introduce Dr. Anne Kavukian. She's one of the world's leading privacy experts. She immigrated to Canada. Her family's of the highest pedigree. A resume would take this entire hour. Three turns as Ontario's privacy commissioner, distinguished visiting professor at Ryerson's Big Data Institute. And as I said earlier, she created the concept of privacy by design. This is not a good housekeeping seal of approval. This is something that's getting institutionalized around the world. She's fearless. She's taken on Facebook and Google. And more importantly, she's defending your privacy rights against your very own government. Dr. Anne Kavukian, thank you for joining Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to this. So I want to talk a lot about your relentless battle on behalf of every listener to protect her privacy. But first, let's talk about you. Born in Egypt, but your parents immigrate to Canada What motivated their move? I'm going to tell you that in a moment, but I'm going to take you even back further. 
1915, because this is where it all started. So I'm Armenian. I think you know that. And in 1915, there was the Armenian Genocide, where the Turks killed 1.5 million Armenians. My grandparents were waiting to be killed the next morning. This is the story I'm going to tell you. My father, he was a three-year-old a baby boy of my grandparents, plus his siblings. And my grandfather is thinking, what can I do to save my family? My God, we're going to be killed. What can I do? What does he know how to do? He was an artist, a painter, beautiful art. But so what, right? Well, how is that going to help you? Earlier in the day, he saw the general uh, overlooking everything, General Pasha. That night, this is my grandma telling me this story. She said, I, I lit a candle, and your grandfather always had me take parchment paper and charcoal wherever we went because he loved to etch. From memory, he etched a portrait of the general. And the next morning, they're packing him up. They're going to be killed. They're, the soldiers are leading him out. And Grandpa rolls up the parchment paper, and he gives it to the soldier. And he says, please, give this to General Pasha with my regards. And the soldier says, stupid man, what's he going to want to do with this? Don't be ridiculous. And my grandfather thought that was it. They were going to be killed. That was it. Before he's about to be executed, my grandparents and my and their family, breakneck speed, comes General Pasha on a horse, and he's waving the parchment paper around that my grandpa gave him. And he comes to the group and he says, who did this? I want to know who did this. And my grandfather says, FND, that's Surin, Turkish. I did it with my regards. He says, I like it very much. You and your family, you're free to go. What a wonderful story. My grandparents then actually went to uh, Jerusalem. He said, God saved his family. He went to the Armenian cathedral in the old city, and he said, uh, what can I do to help? What do you know how to do? He said, I'm a painter. And he said, well, if you can restore these frescoes, there was a huge cathedral, but all the frescoes were falling, the paint was falling off. So my grandfather, grandmother, and their three children spent two years. They moved to um, to Egypt, to Cairo. There was a large Armenian community in Cairo. The Jews got along with the Arabs, who got along with the Christians. Everybody got along. We had a beautiful cathedral and beautiful home. And my parents, of course, were there. My grand, my my father had a beautiful studio. He, he was a portrait a photographer, and his work was renowned. My mom loved her life there. She raised her children, a wonderful, charmed life, until the British pulled out. And Abdul Nasser came in. When Nasser came in, mom said everything changed overnight. Freedom went out the door. The banks were nationalized. You couldn't take your money out. My father was appointed as the official photographer to Nasser. So he had no freedom whatsoever. And you have to understand, given the background I've just given you, my family, freedom it means more to us than anything else. They left in the dead of the night on a ship to Canada. And they just left everything. I didn't realize it at the time. I was too young. But when I look back at how much they gave up to go from a charmed life to a life where you have no resources whatsoever, nothing, and that they did that for their children. They want to raise their children in freedom. So long way of saying, what's the most important thing to me in the world? It's freedom. And privacy forms the foundation of our freedom. I'm chatting with Anne Kavukian, a three-time information and privacy commissioner for the province of Ontario who garnered worldwide attention when she created Privacy by Design and had it adopted as an international standard. The more we learn about how each individual thinks, feels, and behaves, the more power it gives. What do we do? How do we start challenging that? Because we go from being a consumer who has the freedom you covet to 
part of a herd of cattle. We, we have to restore control. You see, privacy, it's not about secrecy. It always drives me crazy when people say, well, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. What's the problem? The problem is that's not what freedom is about, and that's not privacy. Privacy is about control, personal control over the use and disclosure of your personal information. You know, companies and governments may have control of your personal information, but it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to you. Your personal information in the wrong hands can come back to haunt you in many, many ways. Things are changing. There's something called self-sovereign identity now, SSI, that is growing dramatically. It's all about decentralized identity where your personal identifiers reside with you. You have control over them as opposed to all the governments and businesses out there. This is beginning and it's growing. You wouldn't believe the number of companies that have bought into this. Apple, for example, if you have an iPhone, end-to-end encryption comes automatically on that. So Apple can't break your iPhone and find out what you're talking about. It's under your control. And this actually stood the test of uh, the courts. James Comey, a number of years ago, took Apple to court because they went to Apple to, to open up a mobile iPhone that someone that they had arrested had and they couldn't get into it. And Apple said, we can't do that. That information belongs to the individual. We don't have the key. We can't do it. And the reason privacy by design was so important is you have to have privacy become an essential component of the technology. You have to bake it into the code. Fantastic. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented through the generosity of RBC. Text me at any time at 71010 or connect with me at chatterthatmatters.ca. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. What is this privacy by design paradigm? Why do we need that? The way our laws operate, they operate after the fact. It's a reactive system after the harm has arisen. If I, as a regulator, see even the tip of the iceberg of all the privacy harms that arise, I'll be lucky. The majority of privacy breaches remain, in my view, unchallenged, unregulated, and largely unknown. And that's the problem. Each week, you can download the latest episode of Chatter That Matters as a podcast from your iHeartRadio Canada app. Now more with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I'm chatting with Anne Kavukian, a three-time Information and Privacy Commissioner for the province of Ontario, who garnered worldwide attention when she created Privacy by Design and had it adopted as an international standard. Government has an insatiable appetite for our data. Is it to the point where you can topple democracy with this? You can manipulate voting, very essence of what our forebrothers fought for? The answer to that question is yes, Tony. There is so much power in the hands of government and so much that you don't see. Well, when I was Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, Canada, uh, for three terms, in each term, there was a different uh, party that was the government. So it started with the NDP, and then I think the Conservatives, and then the Liberals. Each party, before they became the government, they wanted to protect people's personal information. They were totally for privacy. This is what they wanted to do. Once they became the government, all that changed, and they wanted control. They want control of the information, control of the individuals. It was appalling to me. So what could they do with that data? Well, a draconian sense, you know, if Margaret Atwood was writing about a government that completely abused data, what would, what would happen? They could put information in the hands of your employer relating to previous um, 
terms in prison, which you may have had, but which are no longer in effect, and which you didn't share with your employer, because why would you? In the wrong hands, information can come back to bite you, but it can affect your health, it can affect your employment status, it can affect how your children view you. In this COVID period now, they're asking kids to snitch on their parents, for God's sakes, to reveal, you know, if maybe they have any unfriendly practices. I mean, outrageous things that they're asking. And another question I have is with uh, bias. We all have biases. In the past, it's say that most people, at least in Canada, we could take great pride, we'd find the middle ground. Now I look at with data and social media is that people are kind of going to the fringes, finding the like-minded people, the like-minded content. Is that something being manipulated by technology or is just that's just personal choice that says that's actually the people I want to hang with and the stuff I want to read? It's being facilitated by technology, but it's the latter, I believe. People congregate to like-minded people and they want to hang out with them. And, and of course, it should be their decision to do so. But the point is it entrenches certain points of view that will just be strengthened. So many problems arise from that by not being exposed to other viewpoints and ways of conducting yourself. When I look at technology today, it's moving at the speed of life. Technology can be crafted in very privacy-protective ways. And I think this is growing, Tony. That's the point I want to emphasize, because everyone sees the other side and all of the massive surveillance that is indeed taking place. But there's also enormous number of initiatives that are growing privacy and baking it into the code adopting privacy by design and making it grow. So I just don't want you to lose hope. We can do this and technology can help us. I'm chatting with Anne Kavukian, a world-renowned expert on privacy, and I want to get grander. And what can we be doing to create a moat around our personal data and to be in control of the drawbridge? There is, believe it or not, a surprising number of measures that are out there in social media to allow you to protect your privacy, believe it or not. Facebook has a privacy by design department. I'm not kidding. Nobody knows about it. That's the problem. The first thing I tell people to do is before you give any information, do, just do a very quick search for privacy and say, I want the strongest privacy I can get. The minute you let the website or whoever, and then this applies to offline stores as well, the minute you let them know you care about your privacy, it changes. They say, oh, oh, you care. Okay. Here, here are the things you can do. So I got to ask you because the question is now, should parents post pictures of themselves and their kids in social media? I understand why parents want to do that. They want to show off their beautiful children. They love them. They want to show relatives, etc. I would just say before you do that, do what I just said, ask for the strongest privacy possible. And that way, at least when you share your picture with your child, it will only be going to the number of parties you identified. That's the ultimate goal, to be able to disclose information, but control who you disclose it to. Now, you stared down some of the biggest companies in the world. Google Sidewalk showed up with incredible fanfare to Toronto, Smart City. We're going to track every point of data, and that's going to allow us to speed up the speed of improvement and traffic flow and everything else. You came on as a consultant, and then resigned and that created a lot of noise and subsequently Google even left the city of Toronto. So tell me what you saw there that you didn't like. Let me start at the beginning. I was very excited when uh, Sidewalk Labs approached me and said, we want to hire you. We want you to embed privacy by design into the smart city that we're creating in Toronto. And I live in Toronto, Canada. So I was very excited about this. And they wanted to do my privacy by design 
very exciting. And I said, I'd love it. I would love to make this a smart city of privacy, not a smart city of surveillance. You see, I'm on the International uh, Committee of Smart, smart Cities, and all the smart cities, Dubai, Shanghai, etc., they're all smart cities of surveillance. So that's what I learned from this International Council on Smart Cities. And I said to Sidewalk Labs, we're not going to do that here. And after, and they said, fine, that's why we're hiring you. And I studied it for a while, and I came to the conclusion there's only one way we can proceed, which I call de-identify at source. What I mean by that is, in a smart city, technology is going to be on 24-7, picking up your coming and going, your driving, your activities around the city. There's going to be cameras everywhere and tech picking up everything. So there's, there's no opportunity for people to consent to say, yes, you can have my data or not. No way. It's going to be picked up automatically. And that's why I came up with the term de-identify data at source, meaning the minute a camera or any technology picks up the data, you scrub it of all personal identifiers right at the time it's collected at source. That way, you're still going to have a lot of data, but it's going to be strongly de-identified. The privacy issues will have been stripped away because there's no personally identifiable data on that. I pitched this to Sidewalk Labs. And it took a little while, but they said, sure. They said, okay, we're going to create an urban data trust. And then they said, this is what led me to resign. Then they said, and this is the only thing they never consulted me on because they knew what I would say. They said, of course, we will encourage everyone to de-identify data at source, but, you know, we can't make them do it. It's nonsense. They're not going to do it. They love identifiable data. You have to make it the rule, the law that, can't be broken. And I knew the minute they said that at the board meeting, which was one night, the next morning is when I sent in my resignation. The good news is an hour after I resigned, Waterfront Toronto, the governing body, called me and they said, come work with us. Work directly with us. We believe in de-identifying data at source. We'll do this. So I did. And then I had more media attention on this, Tony, than on practically any other story. I had Organizations from all around the world contact me about why would I resign from such a lucrative position. I had to. I just had to. So that's that's the background there. And then the things have fallen apart, and there is no more Sidewalk Labs doing Smart City in Toronto. So I got to ask you about Facebook. Um, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago. This was the poster child, Zuckerberg, the new uh, the new young guns. Today, many cast this brand as a devil. What's your take? It's not a devil. It's something that needs to be worked on. There's no question. Um, let me tell you a little story. Years ago, when Facebook first started, early 2000s, uh, he had a very strong chief privacy officer, Chris Kelly, and they invited me down to Facebook uh, in Palo Alto, California, to speak to Mark Zuckerberg and his team. And at that time, they were very interested in privacy, very interested in privacy, and they wanted to do the right thing. The next year, you know, Cheryl Zuckerberg was, as Steinberg was hired and uh, the, the business model changed. Tony Chapman, you're listening to Chatter That Matters. Text me at any time, 71010. If you want the, a copy of this broadcast, chatterthatmatters.ca. I'm talking to the one and only Anne Kavukian. She's, uh, she's got so much to say about privacy. When we come back, I'm going to tell her a story about a family that lived in a little Chinese village. And I wanted to see how she responds. We'll be right back. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. 
Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, sponsored by RBC. RBC takes cybersecurity and data protection seriously. They employ over 600 cybersecurity professionals, work in step with leading universities and academic institutions, and RBC is a founding partner of the Cybersecure Catalyst at Ryerson University. Your privacy matters to RBC. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. Talking to Anne Kugukian, who's world-renowned for her thinking on privacy. Her thinking is sought after by some of the top governments and corporations around the world. So, Anne, I was hosting a payment conference, and there was a gentleman that was talking about how far advanced China is with biometrics and payments. He decided to visit his parents, and they lived in a little village. As he walked in, he noticed there was a security camera. At dinner, he said, What's, what, why did you install the camera? And they said, no, we didn't install the camera. The Chinese government did. He said, well, how do you feel about it? And they said, well, we actually love it because since that camera's been installed, there's been zero crime in our neighborhood because nobody can get away with it. Putting the data in the right hands could do an awful lot to protect society. So how do we balance individual privacy with also the need for individual safety and security? We need both, of course. And one of the... um Fundamentals of Privacy by Design, which I created a long time ago, is get rid of the either-or, zero-sum mindset, win-lose, privacy versus security, privacy versus public safety. It's nonsense. You need both. Of course, we need safety and security. I am never opposed to that. That's why companies uh, and governments love Privacy by Design, because I'm not saying get rid of law enforcement, get rid of all your security efforts. No, you have to do both. But you do both in a responsible manner. So with law enforcement, you make sure that there's transparency associated with the practices that they follow in terms of pursuing crime. We have justice systems. If you are a police officer and you have probable cause that an event has taken place, a crime, You take that evidence, you go to a court, and you convince a judge that there is probable cause that a crime was committed here. Then they'll give you a warrant. Be my guest. With a warrant, you go in and you investigate under the authority of the law. You don't do things on your own. You don't go behind people's backs. You don't throw freedom out the window because you believe in public safety. No. You have to do both. And that's what we're doing in our society. What can we do as a society to make sure, instead of a very few having most, that we find a way to equalize our world and maybe regain what the Internet was supposed to be as something that, for the people? This is already happening. And I know it doesn't look like it's happening because it's baby steps compared to everything that's taking place, the measures of surveillance you indicated. But there are more and more groups that are offering privacy-protective solutions to consumers, for example, when they're shopping, etc. There are more and more companies, major tech companies, that are adding privacy-protective measures into their operations. Google has done that recently. Apple, of course, uh, flies on this, and I could go on and on. So it is happening. In the last two years, concern for privacy has been at an all-time high. 90% very concerned about their privacy, 92% concerned about loss of control over their information. This resonates with companies because everybody wants your business. So people are listening and slowly changing to give individuals options to have their privacy protective. So I'm asking you not to give up. I know it seems like we're floundering, but remember what I said at the beginning. 
ignore the odds. Just focus on the positive developments, and they're coming. And isn't it quite something that that law was passed in Jerusalem, where you are, the beginning of the story happened, and uh, and instead of painting a fresco on a church, you painted something that is going to be lasting in time as well. Thank you so much for mentioning that. It was actually at that time, at the conference in Jerusalem. When I went to visit the cathedral where my grandfather had restored the frescoes, so thank you so much for putting those two pieces together. I, I hope I make my grandfather proud. I think he's looking down from the heavens and uh, smiling. At, you know, it was a tough move, but it was the right move. Thank you so much for joining me on uh, Chatter That Matters. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Tony. Thank you so much for inviting me. When I grew up, banks were vulnerable to armed robbers. Attacks in society were the results of weapons of mass destruction. More recently, though, much is happening through the clouds and the deep web. People hidden in bunkers in any corner of the world can attack another corner through their keyboard. This isn't the stuff of Robert Ludlum novels. It's real and it's happening. My next guest is there to counter the cyber attacks. He's there to protect your money and to protect you. His name's Adam Evans. He's the vice president of cyber operations for RBC. But his resume reads more like M from the James Bond movie. Global enterprise, security operations, threat intelligence, defensive threat operations, red team and threat hunting, cryptographic services, payment security, and data protection services. Adam, I'm impressed. Welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me, Tony. Appreciate it. Do you feel our privacy is under attack? And does privacy by design give us the moat we need to protect us? The privacy design mindset that Anne was talking about At a very high level, we've come through this maturation cycle in security, um, and privacy has now come to the forefront. I think what privacy by design is introducing is a mindset that when we create technology solutions, doesn't matter if you're in banking, online shopping, government services, whatever the case may be, designing those solutions with privacy first starts to enable a couple of different things. The first is the protection of the information that you're collecting. It enables you to establish a level of trust with the person that's sharing that information. So that's, I think, a key principle that all organizations need to to start to adhere to. The second part of it, I think, is if you do the right designs and you incorporate privacy into your solutions, this will enable you to onboard services much faster and to extend your business services out into a broader community and not have to think about privacy after the fact. It's much easier to implement security at the beginning of a, a solution or a technology advancement versus trying to put it on after the fact. There is a shared responsibility, and I think this is what people really need to understand is that they are they need to take an active role in protecting their information. Obviously, when they hand their information off to an organization like RBC, we have an obligation to make sure that we are protecting. And part of our business model is actually trust. So the better we do that, the stronger the trust, the stronger the relationship. And I think we can serve our clients better. But when I'm out meeting with clients, they have a role to play here. And that role is making sure that they're not posting more information online than they are comfortable with, making sure they're taking advantage of things like security settings and social media to protect their own privacy. Because what I can tell you is that threat actors are leveraging social media platforms and all of these massive data breaches that are happening to create 
profiles about people that will allow them to surgically attack or tailor campaigns that are highly successful against those individuals because of the access to information that they have. And they're curating this information in underground marketplaces with other cyber criminals. Break down a couple of steps that the listeners can do to create this moat. You talked a lot about be careful what you put on social media. Give me some examples. When you're, you know, when you're on Facebook or you're on LinkedIn or you're in these social media platforms, there are security settings and you need to familiarize yourselves with what those security settings enable you to do to protect your own privacy. So that would be the first piece of it. And education is going to be one of the biggest things that you can do as an individual. Understanding the kinds of things that threat actors do to target individuals, things like email campaigns, you know, trying to catch you while you're web browsing uh, and infect your devices. Those sorts of things are common practice for cyber criminals. So education is the first part. Preparedness is the second part. So do you understand as an individual where your most sensitive information assets are? So I like to ask the question, if somebody gained access to your email inbox, what would they learn about you as an individual? That's where your tax forms more than likely get sent. That's where, you know, you communicate with your community of friends and family. Information gets sent there when you're trying to reset passwords to online accounts, all of those things. It is a treasure trove of information. So creating more stringent security um, controls, things like second factor authentication for your online accounts is also another really helpful way to protect your privacy and to protect your information. And these applications are free. You can download them from the Google store, from the iTunes store and install them and start to create that level of security around your online persona that you've created. His name's Adam Evans. He's the Vice President of Cyber Operations for RBC. He's there to protect your money and to protect you. We'll be right back. Chatter that matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. System breach. Oh. Firewall one. We got a problem. What? Someone synced a rat to one of my servers, a remote access tool. We're being hacked. But we've been so careful. How could they find us? They haven't found us yet. Just cracked the outer layer of our system. Just hack, hack. Chatter that matters with Tony Chapman continues on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. His resume reads more like M from the James Bond movie. Global enterprise, security operations, threat intelligence, defensive threat operations, red team and threat hunting, cryptographic services, payment security, and data protection services. His name's Adam Evans. He's the vice president of cyber operations for RBC. Adam, I used to trust banks because of the big vault. People couldn't blow up or torch their way through. Nowadays, there's the money in the vault. It's all in the cloud. So what is RBC doing? to help me sleep at night knowing that my assets and my money are protected. Let me start with process and, and how we go about protecting the organization as well as protecting our customers uh, from cyber attacks. So part of this is, you know, we are out talking to clients and trying to demystify cybersecurity and make it more consumable for people. I meet with clients uh, on a weekly basis and talk about some of the common tools and tactics 
that are in play with cyber criminals so they can better prepare themselves. We also invest in cutting edge technology. So you've heard about artificial intelligence and machine learning and those sorts of things. We are bringing those principles into our technology platforms and how we operate our organization so we can gain better insights, not just from a cyber point of view. Cyber in and of itself is not a technology problem. This is a business issue. It's a business issue and our business owners deal with very, you know, very varying um, degrees or different business issues like, you know, market risk and mortgage risk and liquidity risk and all of these different sorts of things. Cyber is just another business problem that they have to manage. As I watch Netflix nowadays, and I find that I'm very involved in these spy dramas and cyber attacks. And as you watch that, is this reality or is this Hollywood? The cyber crime economy or this economy of crime has become highly lucrative. It's a $6 trillion a year industry. It's outpacing every other form of crime combined. So it is very lucrative. The barriers of entry into it are coming down. They are offering, criminals are offering up services, criminal services to other criminals. So they're commoditizing crime. At the same time, if you think about what's going on in the world, we are digitizing and transforming into these technology-based organizations. So the threat surface is growing at the same time Crime is commoditizing. So it's almost a perfect storm. And then they're leveraging technologies like machine learning and AI to attack at scale. And then you have things like, you know, Bitcoin and these new sort of digital currencies that allow them to move the proceeds of crime outside the traditional financial system. So how does an organization, even one the size of RBC, keep pace? So it's, it's technology investment, making sure that we prioritize where we're spending our money. I can tell you at RBC, I've been here for seven years, and it is one of the top two priorities at the CEO and board level of the organization to make sure that we're focusing and we're building cybersecurity into everything that we are doing. How do you describe to your mother what you do for a living? <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> <laughs> It, uh, you know, I think it is a it is a very, very difficult uh, thing to articulate. And, and you know what? It actually makes me better. I think at my job, when I get to talk to people that don't necessarily understand it, I take for granted how complex this world can seem to people. And it forces me to take a step back and really kind of think about how I want to articulate this to people and not fear monger them into trying to make decisions or act. It's about educating them. And, and, you know, when I talk to my mom, it's breaking it down into these fundamental principles and articulate them and anchor into this new cyber world that we live in. And I think that helps people make sense or feel connected to what you're trying to tell them. This is the stuff people need to hear because I think they're just ignoring it. There's a big ostrich syndrome going on right now with people when it comes to data and their privacy thinking it can't happen to them. Agreed. And I think that's, you know, part of the part of the move that we we went on over the last couple of years or, or the move that we made was to really get out and start to talk about it. Let's put it, put it on the table. It can be scary, but I think we have a role to play in trying to demystify it for people. So people understand that we can empower them. They can make decisions on how to protect themselves. And what's your advice to parents? You know, their kids might be buried in the basement playing video games or functioning in a very different way than they used to. What's your advice to them in terms of how they can help point their kids on a path 
in life where they can have, they can talk about their job as passionately as you talk about yours? <laughs> well, I think it's part of it is, is education and understanding, um, you know, what's happening in their children's world. Our, the, the, the children that are growing up today are growing up in a very different world than we grew up in. And I alluded to it earlier, like we are a generation that grew up pre-internet and pre-technology for the most part. That's not what this new generation is going to be brought up in. So I think taking an active part in understanding the world that they're growing up in. They are wonderful consumers of technology, but don't necessarily understand how the technology works and some of the things that they need to think about when they operate in this new world. Parents need to gain the skills and need to be able to be that trusted advisor to their children as they move through this new digital world. And there's lots of great online resources. I was part of an organization a few years ago where we were bringing a, a curriculum to schools to educate teachers, parents, and, and children. And it was called Safe and Secure Online by a company called ISC Squared. And this program was really designed to help them start to have the conversations and, and what are the kinds of things that your kids are getting involved in? And then what is the right conversation to have? Because... Simply to your point, putting your, sticking your head in the ground, the ostrich syndrome is not the way to go. You have to have these tough conversations or these uncomfortable conversations with your children to understand what they're getting involved in. And if we talk about um, crypto and cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, obviously it's here to stay, but do you think that its destiny is to become what gold used to be in terms of some ballast in terms of the value of money? I think you have two camps, people that think, you know, you're not going to you're not going to replace traditional sort of tender as far as, you know, cash or, or these traditional financial instruments that we operate. And then you have these, you know, you have this other community that thinks it's going to revolutionize the banking system. And I, I don't profess to be a, a cryptocurrency expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I think one of what it's doing is it is, it is it is definitely a disruptor. It is making financial institutions think about digital currency. I think it's, you know, you see the volatility in these cryptocurrencies. I'm not sure if people will, you know, will adopt cryptocurrency when it's that volatile of a, of a tender that you can use. It's also pushed things like blockchain technology. That, I think, we're just starting to scratch the surface on how that will be used. So I think what we're seeing is almost this technology evolution off of the back of cryptocurrencies emerging and new products and new services that are coming up around cryptocurrency. Those things will really start to revolutionize you know, certain aspects of the banking industry. But I think online industry in general will start to take advantage more and more of those sorts of capabilities. Special thanks to both my guests this week, Dr. Ann Kavukian and Adam Ease. Don't miss a moment of next week's show as we chat with world-renowned musician, Broadway artist, and TV star, Harry Connick Jr. I'm Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.